welcome to Onco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am an associate professor here at the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy here in Mount Home, Tennessee, and we thank the college for uh, supporting the podcast. Uh, we are picking back up with our landmarks in Oncology Pharmacy series. Uh, this will be the fourth one that we have done. Um, prior episodes include um, using uh, methotrexate and 6MP for acute leukemia back in the 50s. Um, the first combo chemo regimen that really worked MOP for Hodgkin's lymphoma. And in the first uh, real use of adjuvant chemotherapy successfully for a solid tumor, CMF and breast cancer. So you can go back and find those in the feed um, sometimes they've been called uh, landmarks in oncology, pharmacy, colon, and then, um, and then some hopefully clever title. So today we're going to be talking about testicular cancer. And we're just going along with the um, ASCO's cancer progress timeline. And we've gotten to the point, and we're focusing on oncology, pharmacy topic. So we're focused on drugs because it's an oncology pharmacy podcast where we're not going to look into, you know, Vogelstein's colon cancer discoveries. Uh, as interesting as they are, uh, we're going to stick to the drugs. Uh, <clears throat> so the next one is um, cis-diamine dichloroplatinum. It's cisplatin. You go back and see our cisplatin um, podcast to hear some of the aliases. Uh, so cisplatin, vinblastine, and bleomycin combination chemo and disseminated testicular cancer, PVB is the name of this regimen, uh, is what they'll call it eventually. And this comes to us from Lawrence H. Einhorn, or Larry Einhorn, um, from Indiana University. Um, <clears throat> a bit of a detour here. Uh, I get asked a lot by um, colleagues, students, why oncology? And there are a lot of potential answers to that question for me. Um, one is that I have always enjoyed reading uh, about oncology. And um, if I do, when I look at my strength finders, I'm all context, if you're familiar with strength finders. So I'm really interested in historical context. That's why I'm going back and doing some of these, these deep dives of things. Um, but I always just was fascinated by the drugs that we use to treat cancer and how cancers uh, develop and how they outsmart us. Um, and in fact, I would just, even in school, after our oncology material, I would keep studying even after I did well in the exam because I just enjoyed the material so much. Um, and that's probably why I started a podcast about it. <laughs> so um, that's one reason is I love learning about the material uh, and you can cure patients. And that kind of brings us back to testicular cancer and why this is so interesting to me. It's a topic that I could read about uh, for days and days, even though it's pretty rare, you know, fewer than a thousand cases a year in the U.S. of testicular cancer. One of the reasons I'm so interested in it is as a pharmacy student at Purdue University, I did an oncology rotation with Chris Fossil. Um, at the IU Cancer Center. And as part of the rotation, um, there was a schedule every month, you know, so like the second Tuesday of every month or whatever, Larry Einhorn would do his testicular cancer talk at four o'clock in one of the, you know, uh, conference rooms. And it was open to anybody who was on an oncology rotation, whether it's a medical resident, pharmacy student, pharmacy resident, fellow, whoever. So I got to hear him talk about testicular cancer and had no idea who he was at the time. And all the work he had done to, to get testicular cancer uh, to where it is as a disease state that uh, has, you know, cure rates above 90%. Um, so the fact that I, you know, I was able to, to hear his talk on this, and he went into depth about the embryonic development of the testes and ectoderm, mesoderm, endoderm. Uh, it, was, it was amazing. If you ever get a chance to hear that, I take advantage of it. 
Um, so we're going to get into that. This is the, the next stop on our landmark series. Um, so this was published in the uh, Annals of Internal Medicine in 1977 and started in the background. Uh, Lee and colleagues in 1960 had used dactinomycin, actinomycin D, chloramycil, and methotrexate for disseminated, so metastatic testicular cancer. Um, and they were finding response rates of 50 to 70%. Now only 10 to 20% of those were complete response rates. And there was a lot of single agent activity. Um, and some of these single agent drugs, um, venblastine, bleomycin, meclorethamine, you know, they would produce some complete response rates. Now low percentages, but about half of those complete response rates were durable. And so we were curing patients back in the 60s and 70s with just uh, one, one chemotherapy drug. But obviously the rates were not that great uh, long term. Um, so venblastine plus bleomycin produced a 39% complete response rate in only 23 patients. Um, and then cisplatin comes along and uh, the idea uh, came to add that to this regimen. Uh, and quote, it is ideal for combination chemotherapy because it's relative lack of myelosuppression. Um, <clears throat> and the, the reference cited here is a phase one study of cisplatin. And I had to go back and find that. So the schedule, they had um, 20 milligrams per meter squared per day for five days was one of the doses. And doing it that way, they gave it IV push over three to five minutes. And they found um, not a whole lot of hematologic toxicity, but they did find some nephrotoxicity. And they also did 100 milligrams, 100 milligrams per meter squared uh, times one dose. Now, one thing that, we'll, that we will learn going forward, the role of IV fluids in preventing the nephrotoxicity, as well as the infusion rate of cisplatin. Today, you know, if you look up in your drug information resources and find the safest rate, it'll say like one milligram per minute, not one milligram per meter squared, but one milligram per minute. So they were giving, you know, uh, a full dose of cisplatin over three to five minutes IV push. So not surprising, and without uh, saline hydration. So not surprising they saw the nephrotoxicity that they did. So um, originally they enrolled 50 patients. Three of these died within the first couple weeks of enrollment. So we have 47 valuable patients. Uh, median age here is 26. And again, this is metastatic disease. This is kind of crazy to be using chemo trying to cure metastatic disease, but that's what makes testicular cancer unique. So um, PVB, P is platinum. So cisplatin, 20 milligrams per meter squared is a 15 minute infusion. So even at IU they had learned not to do IV bolus, they did a short infusion. So 20 milligrams per meter squared of cisplatin um, over 15 minutes for five days of a cycle. Cycles would be three weeks. Uh, then blasting was given on days one and two at a dose of 0.4 mi milligrams per kilogram of body weight. Um, so it was 0.2 mg per kg on day one and day two. Um, so if you take an average 70 kilogram patient, they're getting 28 milligrams per cycle of emblasting. To put that dose in comparison to ABVD uh, for Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, the dose of, of venblastine there is 6 milligrams per meter squared. Take an average American with a BSA of 2, you're talking 12 milligrams of venblastine, say as an average dose, versus 28 in the PVB. So really high doses of venblastine. Um, there was also a maintenance phase of venblasting. So they would do the 12 weeks, four cycles of chemo, and then there'd be a, a maintenance of venblasting uh, for the remaining two years. Um, and that dose was 0.3 mg per kg, so a lower dose in the maintenance of venblasting. And today we don't do maintenance of venblasting, and we'll come back to that. Um, and then bleomycin was given um, 30 units on day 2, 9, and 16. 
Um, now today we give Blio a lot the same day as, as our Platinum. That um, They gave Blio IV push, so why do they give it the following day? Well, <clears throat> Vinblast, uh, quoting here, thusly Vinblasting was given six hours before Blio to take advantage of potential synergism between these two drugs. Bleomycin has shown uh, to be most effective in killing uh, Cho, Chinese hamster ovary cells, in mitosis. And because of emblasting produces an arrest in the M phase, uh, there may be um, synergy and maximal tumor destruction of bleomycin. So they're taking, uh, extending some, some preclinical or some in, uh, in vitro data uh, to try to maximize killing of this. They also did um, uh, BCG, so the, the old TB vaccine, um, after 12 weeks of bleo, uh, after they finished the, 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 the four cycles to try and take advantage of some immunotherapy effect. And again, we don't do that anymore as well. So of the 47 patients, 35, 74% achieved a complete remission. Um, four patients died in complete remission and all four of those deaths happened early on. Uh, no drug-related deaths. Early on, they saw some uh, gram-negative sepsis, uh, one bleomycin pulmonary fibrosis, um, and at the time and at the time of writing of the 35 complete remissions, only three had relapsed. So these were durable, re complete remissions. These were cures, um, and the cure and uh, you know the relapses they did have, uh, you know, occurred early for for testicular cancer. The relapses tend to happen within two years. Another interesting thing that's going to become important in treating testicular cancer that we learned from this study is of the 12 patients in partial remission, all right, so let me just go over those numbers again. 35 of the 47, so 74% had a complete re response, complete remission of disease. The other 12 had a partial response. So the overall response rate is 100% for this regimen, um, and it's not even the regimen we use to this day. Um, so five of the 12 who just had a PR then became disease-free following surgical removal of residual disease. This is an important part. The chemo is killing the rapidly dividing cells, but some of those testicular cancer cells are teratoma, which is a slow-growing tumor that's not susceptible to chemo, but can be cured with surgical resection. Um, and the um, disease-free survival rate was 85% overall when you factor in the cures just from chemo and then those who had disease uh, removed surgically. Um, so prior to this, I mentioned you're talking 30, 39% complete remission rate with combination chemo. This more than uh, doubles that as far as a cure rate getting into the 80%. So pretty amazing uh, what they were able to do. Um, moving into the toxicity, um, they learned some stuff. Remember, cisplatin was, was brand new when it's being used here. So during the first year of the study, IV hydration was only used for patients having severe nausea. And here we see some of the subjective description of toxicity in these early studies. Um, although only three of these patients had severe azotemia, uh, which they define as a BUN above 50 or serum creatinine above 3. Um, many had, not there's no exact number, many of these early patients had a 25 to 50% reduction in their creatinine clearance. Um, the nausea, moderate to severe, um, occurred in almost all patients. Um, so initially, they had some trouble with nephrotoxicity. They only did hydration in those who had really bad nausea and vomiting. But <clears throat> more recently, they have been using vigorous hydration in all patients, uh, using 100 mils per hour of normal saline for 12 hours before admission, and then all throughout the duration of their five days of cisplatin. And after doing that, none of them had any uh, serum creatinines above 1.5. They didn't use mannitol. They didn't... Um, 
they did a couple, they saw some that had a decrease in high uh, frequency hearing from the ototoxicity. Um, interestingly, those first patients uh, receiving cisplatin without any IV hydration, even the ones um, who didn't have frank acute kidney injury with the dose, tended to have a, a, a later nephrotoxicity later. Um, so they would have, um, they would do well with cisplatin, but then later they'd have kind of a chronic nephrotoxicity they would see from uh, the cisplatin. Uh, and they saw a little bit of hypokalemia as well. We know that electrolyte wasting happens with cisplatin. Uh, Bleo produced fever, chills, cutaneous striae in all patients. Those are the infusion reactions we think of with bleomycin. All patients had alopecia, which was attributed to the bleomycin. Uh, there was one death uh, from pulmonary um, fibrosis with bleo. Uh, and this is kind of sad. The patient who died from this accidentally got um, some extra doses of bleo. They ended up with 420 units of bleomycin. Um, whereas the study was designed so that they would not, uh, they would not have that many. I think they would only get to, um, uh, should only get to 360 uh, units of bleomycin. So that was a, a, a mistake. So at the dose given, kind of a intent to treat, they didn't have any uh, deaths from bleopulmonary fibrosis. Then blasting, remember, higher dose of blasting. They report the side effects here, by the way, um, based on how they contribute the side effect to the drug. So venblastine, myalgia in half of these patients, and again, higher dose of venblastine, um, sometimes severe, severe enough, because you don't think, I don't think of venblastine as causing muscle pain, but again, we don't give doses as high as they gave in this study. So some of these patients had to have opioids um, during the first um, 12 weeks of therapy. That's during the high dose of venblastine. When they get the lower dose in maintenance, they didn't have that. They did see some anemia and thrombocytopenia and general myelosuppression, which you would expect from venblastine. It's got a B in it, so it's going to have more bone marrow suppression, just like venorobine, uh, than you would expect from vincristine. Um, so in the discussion, they talk about at best you would see a 50% CR8, so in a half of those maybe would be cured. Um, here they're blowing that out of the water. 74% complete response rate, 85% disease-free rate when you act um, factor in chemo. I mentioned this before in the MOP uh, discussion. Quote, the rationale behind combination chemo is to combine antineoplastic drugs that, that are all individually active against the specific tumor, exhibit different toxicities, and have different mechanisms of action. And that's the case for cis, bleo, and vinblastine. Um, there is a great description here of bleomycin's mechanism of action. I've never heard it described this way, so I'm going to read this. Uh, all, you know, when you look it up in your drug information resource, it's going to say bleomycin causes single and double strand breaks or something like that of DNA. <clears throat> Quote, bleomycin combines with DNA in the presence of a sulfhydryl sulf, sulf compound or hydrogen peroxide, resulting in a decrease of the DNA melting point and scission of the DNA breaks. So it has to do with lowering the melting point of DNA. That's what leads to the DNA spread, uh, strand breaks, which is a lot easier to remember now. It makes a lot more sense to me uh, after reading this. So thank you to Einhorn and colleagues. Um, so they go through it and talk about um, you know future steps forward and uh, some of the things that they think is maybe um, they don't need to do as high dose of venblastine. Uh, in patients who had prior radiotherapy, they actually did a lower dose of venblastine. It's a 25% dose reduction. And they've been doing that in some patients and not seeing the, the myelosuppression they had seen otherwise. Um, they routinely hospitalized patients who had a fever um, and had an ANC less than 1,000. 
uh, and, but they always tr tried to avoid gentamicin or other aminoglycosides because of the nephrotoxic risk of cisplatin. And again, everyone 100 mils an hour of normal saline. So this was uh, 1977 that this is published. Um, and this was PVB. Uh, we get to um, 19, let's see. We get to uh, the early 80s, so 81 to 84, uh, uh, the Southeastern Cancer Study Group, and this is include folks at IU, they compared uh, PVB to BEP. Now they didn't call it BEP then, they called it P for platinum, VP16, which is a, a moniker for etoposide, and B for bleal. So basically the old PVB versus BEP, which we use today. Complete response rates were 74% with, with BVP, exactly the same as we saw in this study, and then 83% with BEP. Now, this was, uh, this was a numeric superiority, not a statistically superior result. Uh, the p-value was non-significant. Um, but there was less toxicity in the venblastine arm, so they had less uh, paresthesias, myalgias, and abdominal cramps. Um, but otherwise had uh, the same outcomes, maybe slightly better in BEP. If you add more, you might say that. Um, subsequently, so that was um, Williams and Einhorn in New England Journal of Medicine in 1987 when that was published. So that basically established BEP as the go-to regimen. Now, the, the risk stratification uh, changed a little bit over time. So this is mostly we're talking about good and intermediate risk patients here, and which is going to be based on where the METs are. Are they just in the lung? What do the tumor markers look like? How high are they or how low are they, uh, respectively? Um, so then subsequently, BEP four cycles was compared to BEP times three cycles, and were shown to be basically the same, uh, but BEP four, because it's longer, uh, a little bit more toxicity. Um, you may be asking yourself, boy, cisplatin, everyone's afraid of that. Why not carboplatin? Well, carboplatin was studied, so JCO1993. Um, uh, this is from uh, Sloan Kettering in New York, and uh, um, Bajoran DF is the primary author. Um, you'll see Mozart RJ, who's a big name now in renal cell carcinoma, also is a co-author of this. So they basically did um, etoposide cisplatin, which had been shown in, in single center studies to produce roughly the same curates of BEP, and they compared it to carboplatin and etoposide. And basically what they found was um, CR rates were, were similar but relapse rates were higher with carboplatin. So relapse, or I call it treatment failure, so either an incomplete response or relapse. So treatment failure was 24% with the carbo group versus 13 with cisplatin. So another way to think of that is substituting carbo for cis doubled the rate of treatment failure. So we don't really want to substitute cis for carbo. So where that leaves us today for our good risk patients is BEP for three cycles, or EP for four cycles. And uh, Einhorn and Foster, who's one of his colleagues from IU, um, write in JCO in, in 2006, um, commenting on a, a big study um, from Sloan Kettering. I'm looking at um, four, four cycles uh, of BEP, uh, four cycles of EP and its response. So they're basically talking about, do you do three of BEP or four of EP for those with good risk? And uh, quote, in our opinion, BEP times three has less toxicity due to shorter duration of cisplatin with less cumulative anorexia, nausea, ototoxicity, neurotoxicity, and sterility. Uh, four cycles of, of platinum, uh, 
once you get to 100 milligrams per meter square, 400 milligrams per meter squared cumulative dose of lifetime cisplatin, you see that risk of infertility go up. So doing three cycles of BEP certainly will um, uh, preserve or is more likely to preserve um, sterility in these young men. Um, <clears throat> uh, of course, if you do EP times four, there's no bleomycin, so there's no risk of pulmonary fibrosis for those patients. Um, again, quoting Einhorn and Foster, quote, we do not utilize a test dose of bleomycin at IU. This was uh, recently on Twitter, uh, Donald Harvey talked about, he's been starting the hashtag bad chemo info. Uh, a lot of uh, drug information resources, probably the bleo package insert says that you need to do a test dose uh, of bleomycin. Just because you have a fever chills, that's everybody had that with bleomycin. It's not really an anaphylactic reaction, so you can still go on to give it. So that test dose doesn't necessarily predict uh, whether you're going to have a, a severe reaction to that drug. So they don't use a test dose. They also say we do not routinely obtain pulmonary function tests uh, in good risk patients without adverse features. Um, because uh, as long as they do three cycles of BEP, that's 270 units cumulative bleomycin, um, I would still recommend getting the pulmonary function test just uh, to make sure. And there's really no evidence of EP4 being better than BEP3, um, and they go on and cite some of the, the studies here. A lot of the studies compare this don't show a statistically, dif statistically significant difference between those two studies or two, two regimens but BEP times three tends to have numerically higher uh, response and survival rates. So if you are a PGY2 resident and you're getting ready to prepare your uh, testicular cancer talk, uh, you still got some work to do on seminoma versus non-seminoma, uh, good risk, uh, intermediate risk, poor risk features, uh, uh, which type, <laughs> which histologies produce uh, AFP, beta HCG, those sort of things. But Hopefully you're, you're uh, mostly prepared for talking about those studies. Um, I want to thank those of you for, uh, who have gone on to iTunes and rated us. A couple five-star reviews. That's nice. Makes me feel good inside. Makes me want to keep doing the podcast. Uh, feel free to leave a comment for what you'd like uh, to hear more of and what you have liked so far. And again, find me on Twitter at farmdetanib, farm D. Uh, E-E-T-I-N-I-B, and follow the podcast at OncoFarmPod. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, I look forward to talking to you then. See you a little ways down the road.